sir if there is anything in the style the matter or the object of this letter which is calculated to give offence to your excellency i am persuaded you will readily forgive it when you reflect on the motives which induce me to write it an old soldier could possess no feelings but those of the kindest character towards one who has shed so much lustre on the profession of arms nor can a citizen of the country of washington cease to wish that in bolivar the world might behold another instance of the highest military attainments united with the purest patriotism and the greatest capacity for civil government such sir have been the fond hopes not only of the people of the united states but of the friends of liberty throughout the world i will not say that your excellency has formed projects to defeat these hopes but there is no doubt that they have not only been formed but are at this moment in progress to maturity and openly avowed by those who possess your entire confidence with these words william henry harrison launched into a lengthy lecture of criticism that would be the basis of his letter of september twenty seventh eighteen twenty nine to simon bolivar hello and welcome to the harrison podcast i'm your host jerry landry for the bulk of this episode we're going to take a good look at this letter as i think it reveals a great deal about harrison and his conception of leadership at a time in his life when he was starting to think about aiming higher than he had previously imagined as noted in our last episode harrison at this point had handed over his position as u s minister to columbia to jackson's appointee thomas moore however something prompted harrison to write at length to bolivar to warn him of the perils in his path both for him and for his nation should you want to read the full letter yourself i'm posting a link to it on the blog site at whhpodcast.blueberry that's b-l-u-b-r-r-y dot com the letter begins with harrison warning boulevard that some of his key allies were trying to lure him into a course of action that would result in quote their future wealth and honors but that this would be attained by the sacrifice of quote your great character as mentioned last episode there was a faction in columbia that felt that the answer to some of their recent political and economic woes would be to make bolivar into a monarch and bolivar himself had begun to put out feelers to that end with other european powers harrison frames the question before bolivar in whether he should take on monarchical or as harrison frequently refers to them in the letter enhanced powers as one of whether quote no course remained to save the country from the evils of anarchy harrison then reframes the question as asking if the problem is whether quote the history of this country really exhibits unequivocal evidence that the people are unfit to be free to which harrison answers that quote, i search in vain for a single fact to show that in columbia at least the state of society is unsuited to the adoption of a free government those who listened to the last episode will remember that harrison was questioned earlier in the year about comments that were taken out of context to suggest just this and harrison makes a point at a couple of places in the letter to compliment the columbian people going so far to say later on that quote, the people of columbia possess many traits suitable for a republican government a more orderly forbearing and well-disposed people are nowhere to be met with it almost seems that he's overcompensating but it's very clear that he positions himself as being an advocate of the common people of columbia in this letter he goes on to say that quote, 
It is the most difficult thing in the world for me to believe that a people in the possession of their rights as freemen would ever be willing to surrender them and submit themselves to the will of a master. From this, he plunges into a brief history of France from the Revolution leading into the Napoleonic era, with Harrison asserting that, quote, I do not think that it is by any means certain that the majority of the French people favored the elevation of Napoleon to the throne of France. However, following on the possibility that they did, Harrison compares the situations of revolutionary France to those of Colombia and avows that, quote, no people ever passed from under the yoke of a despotic government in the enjoyment of entire freedom with less disposition to abuse their newly acquired power than those of Colombia. Geez, Harrison, dial it down a notch. The people of Colombia know you love them already. Don't scare them off by coming on too strong. Harrison remarks that, while there was still a war for independence going on, the people were willing to submit to a continuation of some policies that were complaints of Spanish colonial rule, including, quote, the monopoly of certain articles of agricultural produce and the oppressive duty of the Alcavala, which was misspelled in both printed sources I found of this letter, and is actually the Alcabala, a sales tax collected in the colonies. However, Harrison continues, quote, when peace was restored, when not one enemy remained within its, meaning Columbia's, borders, it might reasonably have been supposed that the people would have desired to abolish these remains of arbitrary government and substitute for them some tax more equal and accordant with Republican principles. Harrison notes arguments that the continuation of these practices were the will of the people and categorically states, quote, let me assure you, sir, that these assertions will gain no credit with the present generation or with posterity. He then breaks down another argument of the monarchists, that Bolivar would need increased powers to deal with future rebellions, like those of General José Antonio Páez, who had attempted to lead Venezuela to break away from Gran Colombia. Harrison reminds him, however, that as soon as he arrived on the scene as, quote, the legitimate head of the republic, all opposition ceased, and Venezuela was restored to the Republic. Harrison questions the logic of thinking, quote, why you would not have succeeded with the same means against any future attempt of General Paez or any other general. Harrison then begins to deliver his call to action by stating that, quote, there appears to be one sentiment in which all parties unite. You alone can save the country from ruin, at least for much calamity. It is for Bolivar to decide whether the path despotism or the path of republicanism will lead his nation to safety. In case you haven't already figured it out, Harrison's leaning hard towards republicanism. He tells Bolivar that, quote, there is but one way for your excellency to escape from the snares which have been so artfully laid to entrap you, and that is, to stop short in the course which, unfortunately, has already been commenced. Every step you advance, under the influence of such counsels as those of the monarchist, will make retreat more difficult, until it will become impracticable. He reiterates that, quote, I have said, and I most sincerely believe, that from the state into which the country has been brought, that you alone can preserve it from the horrors of anarchy. But I cannot conceive that any extraordinary powers are necessary. The authority to see that the laws are executed, to call out the strength of the country, to enforce their execution, is all that is required. 
A little further on, he asserts, quote, Depend on it, sir, that the moment which shall announce the continuance of arbitrary power in your hands will be the commencement of commotions which will require all your talents and energies to suppress. You may succeed, but your feelings will be eternally racked by being obliged to make war upon those who have been accustomed to call you their father and to invoke blessings on your head and for no cause but their adherence to principles which you yourself had taught them to regard more than their lives this is the portion of the letter where harrison's language is the most emphatic and forceful and in doing so it invokes on a modern ear something that sounds more like a personal appeal from one leader to another the personal diplomacy that has played an important role in some of the major breakthroughs in twentieth and early twenty-first century foreign relations think fdr and churchill the camp david accords or the reykjavik summit early nineteenth century diplomatic protocol was typically much more formal and reserved it was more a matter of working through proxies and carefully choosing the perfect official and unofficial proxies to best reflect the voice of the administration however in this letter it appears that harrison gambled that the stoic and austere approach was not the best one to take for bolivar indeed Bolivar's biographer, Maria Rana, describes Bolivar during his time in Paris as a young man, making, quote, a passionate case for a liberated continent, free from the yoke of the Spanish crown. Perhaps Harrison wanted to appeal to what remained of that passion to liberate both Bolivar and Colombia from what he saw as the inherent dangers of monarchy and dictatorship. Harrison shares with Bolivar his belief that, if the choice was between tranquility through an undemocratic government or anarchy through a democratic government, quote, if the tranquility of Colombia is to be preserved in this way, the wildest anarchy would be preferable. Out of that anarchy, a better government might arise. But the chains of military despotism once fastened upon a nation, ages might pass away before they could be shaken off. He briefly turns to the example of his homeland to assert that, quote, I contend that the strongest of all governments is that which is most free. We consider that of the United States as the strongest, precisely because it is the most free. It possesses the faculties equally to protect itself from foreign force or internal convulsion. In both, it has been sufficiently tried. However, Harrison quickly returns to the case of Columbia to give his theory as to the cause of its, quote, constant decline, saying that it, quote, arises from the fewness of those who labor and the number of those who are to be supported by that labor. Basically, he posits that the Colombian system of government is too top-heavy and too much of a financial burden on the resources of the people, particularly in the military apparatus of the nation. Quote, to satisfy the constant and pressing demands which are made upon it, the treasury seizes upon everything within its grasp, destroying the very germ of future prosperity. If all the resources of the state are going into supporting the military, then what is left to build up a stable economic system with jobs and opportunities for the people of the nation? Indeed, Bolivar had witnessed the strain that financing decades of war had placed on Spain and its colonies. While for we of the modern era, this very idea in the 1980s played a key role in the Reagan administration's policy towards the Soviet Union. I imagine that there are economic theories about it, but since I've already thrown in mentions of three 20th century presidents, I'm probably at my limit for tangents that I can take for this episode. Suffice it to say that there is some strength behind Harrison's argument. 
Harrison then moves on to make the point that a, quote, strong government, as he phrases it, would undermine the moral economy of the nation as well. Quote, man does not learn under oppression those noble qualities and feelings which fit him for the enjoyment of liberty, nor is despotism the proper school in which to acquire the knowledge of the principles of republican government. A government whose revenues are derived from diverting the very sources of wealth from its subjects will not find the means of improving the morals and enlightening the minds of the youth by supporting systems of liberal education, and if it could, it would not. Why would a despot want to make those under his or her thumb smart enough to figure out how to overthrow their oppressor? The next part of the letter is the crux of Harrison's personal appeal to Bolivar. He turns the spotlight on Bolivar and how making himself a dictator would personally affect him. Harrison describes how, quote, the groans of a dissatisfied and oppressed people will penetrate the inmost recesses of your palace, and you will be tortured by the reflection that you no longer possess that place in their affections, which was once your pride and your boast, and which would have been your solace under every reverse of fortune. I will ask, if you could enjoy life, which would be preserved by the constant execution of so many human beings, your countrymen, your former friends, and almost your worshippers. There is nothing more corrupting, nothing more destructive of the noblest and finest feelings of our nature than the exercise of unlimited power. He paints a bleak picture of a Columbia under a Bolivar dictatorship, and warns the liberator that, quote, blood may smother for a period, but can never extinguish the fire of liberty which you have contributed so much to kindle in the bosom of every Colombian. In other words, watch out, Bolivar, for you've taken the people too far on the path of liberation that they won't let anyone, not even you, stand in their way. Harrison admits the average Colombian may stumble due to, quote, their present want of knowledge, but asserts that, quote, no one has ever doubted their capacity to acquire knowledge. In his conclusion, Harrison reminds Bolivar that there is another path, one much better for him and for Colombia. He reminds the liberator of the example of the American liberator, George Washington, and how, quote, the source of the veneration and esteem which is entertained for his character by every description of politicians is to be found in his undeviating and exclusive devotedness to the interest of his country. No selfish consideration was ever suffered to intrude itself into his mind. He tells Bolivar that, quote, the friends of liberty throughout the world, and the people of the United States in particular, are waiting your decision with intense anxiety. The place which you are to occupy in their esteem depends on yourself. With that, Harrison's letter ends. However, there's one more excerpt I'd like to look at before discussing the letter as a whole. Close to the end of the letter, Harrison seems to be appealing to Bolivar's ego when he writes, quote, In this enlightened age, the mere hero of the field and the successful leader of armies may, for a moment, attract attention but it will be such as is bestowed upon the passing meteor, whose blaze is no longer remembered when it is no longer seen. To be esteemed eminently great, it is necessary to be eminently good. Going out on a limb for a moment here, please be ready with those grains of salt. Taking into consideration when in Harrison's life he's writing this letter, 
This quote seems to have a good deal to say about William Henry Harrison. Harrison had been a, quote, hero of the field, and, quote, the successful leader of armies, as he reminded Bolivar at the beginning that he was, quote, an old soldier. And indeed, as we've seen in our look at Harrison's life, he was feted and cheered for a bit in various parts of the nation after the Battle of the Thames. But where was Harrison now? He had spent the 1820s clamoring for one office or another, suffering defeats in the legislature and at the ballot box, struggling to get his family on financially solid ground. He had fought for the pensions and relief of so many veterans and widows, but now he was the one with his hand out. And even when he got a break, as he did with the Columbia mission, it didn't last for long. Soon, he'd be heading back to the States, with no job and no friendly administration in the White House to appeal to for another one. He was getting further and further away from the Battle of the Thames, and, as he said, that quote, Blaze is no longer remembered when it is no longer seen. We have no way of knowing, of course, but it's not out of the realm of imagination to believe that Harrison had spent some time in Bogota trying to figure out what he was going to do with the rest of his life. There had been talk of him being vice president or president before, but he knew that he couldn't just rest on his laurels. The Battle of the Thames alone was not going to get him to the White House. Just looking at Andrew Jackson, he followed up the Battle of New Orleans with a continued military career in the First Seminole War and an active hand in political intrigue and managing his public image. Harrison couldn't and likely wouldn't want to present himself as another Andrew Jackson, the dashing but at times controversial and crass hero. No, Washington was more of Harrison's example to emulate. But even then, what would distinguish him, Harrison? What would take him to the next level, quote, in this enlightened age? Quote, to be esteemed eminently great, it is necessary to be eminently good. Might Harrison have been thinking of his own future when he wrote those lines? Again, we can only speculate, but I think it's worth considering. As we'll see in our next episode, Harrison would have to face criticism of his letter when he returned home. Bolivar's biographer, Maria Rana, describes the letter by saying that, quote, Harrison even had the effrontery to write Bolivar a long and insulting letter, scolding him for flaws his enemies had ascribed to him. While certainly long, and at times scolding, I don't think the letter was meant to be insulting. It was provocative, true especially in comparison to the vast majority of other diplomatic correspondents of the time. While Harrison would claim, and was technically correct, that he wrote the letter as a private citizen and not as a representative of the United States, it was clear that in his mind he felt that he was writing it as an unofficial representative of America, both its citizens and its ideals. Why would he even write this letter in the first place? He was on his way out. All he had to do at this point was pack his bags, probably attend a couple of farewell parties, and skedaddle. There are two possible reasons that I can see. One, this was his last stab at making his mark. He hadn't really accomplished much in his diplomatic mission due to its brevity, the instability in Columbia, and the lack of political will in Washington to strengthen ties in Latin America. Clay had, after all, told him in his instructions to take any opportunity to promote American ideals. Why not use that to make a bold statement that could be spun at home as Harrison taking it to the next level and not just being a, quote, mere hero in the field? Reason number two. Maybe, just maybe, he actually believed all of this stuff. In our cynical age, 
it's hard to believe that when someone waxes philosophic about liberty and justice that they actually mean what they're saying but there does seem to be a passion in harrison's words we can't know how much harrison saw personally or heard from others about the suffering of the average columbian due to the economic difficulties since harrison did surround himself with a number of anti-bolivar individuals it's likely that they had his ear and passed along both truths and hyperbole perhaps just perhaps harrison who had gone to bat for veterans and widows in congress felt that it was his moral duty to say something before he left in order to try to make their voices heard at the highest level of government and hopefully turn the tide in the favor of the little guy for my part i think it was a bit of both next time harrison heads back to north bend but both the journey there and his journey through the 1830s is going to have its twist in terms as we'll see in an episode that i'd like to call years of struggle just a reminder we will not have a new harrison podcast episode next week instead to commemorate the 58th presidential inauguration i will be launching a new podcast the presidencies of the united states i'll share information on the harrison podcast blog as well but the new podcast can be found at presidencies.blueberry that's b-l-u-b-r-r-y dot com or on itunes or stitcher by searching for jerry landry it will expand a bit on our mission at the harrison podcast but instead of jumping around between topics as we sometimes do here, I will be systematically going through each presidency one by one and talking about the people and the events that helped shape each administration. For our Harrison fans, it will likely be a bit before we get to our general. But fear not, the Harrison podcast isn't going away. Every two weeks, we'll have a new episode on here about Old Tip and his time. The new podcast is born out of questions that I started receiving from friends and associates following our recent presidential election. As I began to realize how much context was missing from political conversations and commentary in the modern era, I felt it was only right for me to share what I know about presidential history, as well as learn more myself, in order to better understand where we've been, as well as what it means for where we're at and where we're going as a nation. I hope you'll join me next week for our first podcast at Presidencies, then come back here the following week for a new Harrison podcast. Until then, please feel free to send any questions, comments, or ideas to Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Past episodes can be found on iTunes and Stitcher if you're not listening to us from there already, as well as the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's blueberry without the e's, dot com, where you can also find sources for this episode and supplementary materials. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast, again, all one word. As always, I greatly appreciate you listening, and take care, dear friends. Until next time.